Heavenly Father, thank you for this last 30 or so, 40 chapters of Isaiah that we've spent time in. This morning as we come to the end of this section and as we come to the end of uh, the question that has been asked time time again, who will we trust? We ask that you would teach us to trust you and that you would teach us to trust you in prayer. Father, keep far, far from us pride. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is at work in the world. He's at work in his universe, in his creation. The universe expanding and contracting happens under his hand. Stars being born, stars dying happens at his command, at his word. He's at work in his world. The, uh, the enormous meteoric forces of nature, or so we call them, are in fact his handiwork. Forests growing, whales swimming through the ocean. God is at work in everything that happens in his creation. And so, of course, that means that he's not just at work in the big things out there, but he is at work in people, in me, in you. His personal, intimate, relational God is at work. He's not the clockmaker. You know that analogy where God made this world which was like a perfect clock and then he set it running and then he stepped back and let it go. He's certainly not like the pagan gods who are busy frolicking around and carrying out their own desires, not really caring about what happens down on earth. He, is intimate. he sustains the universe moment by moment with the word of his power. And his plans and his purposes are such that even we are part of them. We're not like a stick in a stream, right? You, you throw a stick, you ever play poo sticks? I don't know why they were called poo sticks, but anyway, you, you throw a stick in a stream and, it's, and it just goes. It's taken by the current. It flows in and out. You do a little race or whatever. gets sucked under by a whirlpool, pops out somewhere else, gets stuck behind rocks. Our lives aren't like that. Just there to the whim of whatever God does. No say, passive. We're not even like a fly in a storm. Right, the storm blows the fly around, but it has a little bit of control. It can kind of, I can do a few things here and there. God mostly does what he wants, and every now and then maybe I can twist his arm to do what I want. No, our place is that of participants, intimately involved in the plans and the purposes of God. God acts in and through people. Now in Isaiah 36 to 39, in one man, we see an example both of how to rightly participate in God's plans and how to wrongly do so. Now before we get into it, I hope you've got a sheet on the way in. The lucky ones of you would have got it in colour and if you came late, you got it in black and white. Uh, if you don't have one, put your hand up if you really want one. Now I, I just found this helpful. I'm a visual kind of guy and uh, Mark, Mark Barry at Visual Unit does fantastic little summaries of these kinds. And it's just helpful to see at a glance, where are we in the book of Isaiah? Now you'll see chapters 36 to 39 are sort of that bridge section. It's grey if you have a coloured one. It's also grey if you have a black and white one, but it doesn't help you very much. And you'll see that Assyria, the threat of Assyria, is about to end and the crisis with Babylon is about to begin. We're going to see that in these chapters. It comes to a head, really, as Isaiah has asked time and time again, who will you trust? 
In these chapters we see Hezekiah face the reality of the Assyrians and the question, will he trust God? What does it mean for King Hezekiah to participate in God's plans? Now I've got three headings, you'll see them in your outline, the problem, the response and some lessons and we're going to do that twice. So you may want to draw a line down the middle of that outline and we're going to do it once and then we're going to do it again because there's two encounters in this chapter, in these chapters, two encounters with two different nations and Hezekiah responds very differently to the two of them. So the first problem, chapter 36 of Isaiah, the first problem is that Assyria has come. Assyria has arrived. Decades after Isaiah warned Judah, here they are. Isaiah 36 and verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. It's one sentence, but it must have been quite some campaign. Sennacherib came through with his army and wiped them out. He captured every single one of them. He defeated them in battle. Now, we have a very interesting archaeological artefact that's been found. Uh, They call it Sennacherib's prism. And it's this kind of a totem thing that Sennacherib has had inscribed upon it the victories of his battles. And would you believe one of them is this one, is inscribed upon this artefact that we've found from Sennacherib's time. And he says, 46 of their cities I captured. Sennacherib came through and with his might and by his power he conquered. Now just an aside, how does that make you feel that, that we have found this artefact, archaeological artefact from thousands of years ago that what do you know it matches exactly with the biblical account? I, I, I kind of go, well that's, that's good, I like that. It strengthens my confidence in the scriptures. But it probably shouldn't. Because to be perfectly honest, I should believe this story because it's in the Bible as much as because of anything else. Anyway, by the by, just worth thinking about a little bit. Sennacherib conquered 46 of Judah's cities, he said, including Lachish, which was kind of the second biggest one. And so, verse 2, as the king has conquered these, he sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Now, that must have been a surprise to Hezekiah. In 2 Kings, it's not recorded for us here, but in the account in 2 Kings, Hezekiah sent a whole stack of tribute to Sennacherib while Sennacherib was at Lachish. So he thought, I'm going to buy him out, send him a ton of cash, a bunch of goodies, and he said, look, how about you go your way, I'll go mine, we're cool. And then he wakes up one morning and the army is at his door. I I don't know what Hezekiah was thinking, right? If you give a bully half your sandwich... Of course he's going to ask for the other half, right? Of course this king is going to come. And there he is, the messenger. Is God in control? Can you trust him? I want to show you a little moment of poetry, a little moment of symmetry that has happened in this book. God's plan is just poetic how it happens. Keep your finger in Isaiah 36 and come back to chapter 7. So keep your finger in 36, we're going to come back to it very quickly, but flick back to Isaiah chapter 7. As Isaiah was dealing with King Ahaz, the Lord said to Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 3, sorry, this is where I, chapter 7 verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, to meet Ahaz, and notice where he is to meet Ahaz, 
at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Okay, Isaiah, go and meet the king there. And what does he say? Verse 17, this is the message. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim. He will bring the king of Assyria. Isaiah, go and stand at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field and tell Judah that Assyria is coming. Now flip back over to chapter 36 and notice where the commander of the army of the Assyrians stops. The king of Assyria sent his field commander. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, they came out to meet him. Isn't that beautiful? Decades earlier, God put Isaiah, his messenger, at one spot and said, Assyria is coming. And Assyria came to that very spot and placed their demands before Jerusalem. And what demands, what a message, what fright. The field commander said, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, <laughs> you, you, you guys think you can fight us? We've taken out everything. I've brought a portion of the army of the king and your might is but empty words. You're a bunch of hot air. That's all you got. That's it. You can't beat us. You have no might. We could give you 2,000 of our horses and you couldn't even put people on them and we'd still beat you. Who are you going to trust? Oh, you're going to trust Egypt, are you? Yeah, that's nice. Do you know what's likely to happen to you if you trust Egypt? It's like grabbing something that breaks and pierces you. You're just going to end up worse. You think Egypt's going to help you? Good luck with that. Oh, and you think your God is going to save you? (laughs) You guys are nuts. Isn't this the very God that Hezekiah has been tearing down the places of worship to? I'm noticing verse 7. If you say to me, this messenger says, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar. You think God's going to be with you? He's with me, says the Assyrian. Now this messenger is clearly an extraordinary person. He knew a lot of what was happening in Judah. I mean, they tore down. Hezekiah did that. He tore down the altars and the high places. Somehow this messenger speaks Hebrew. He's he's kind of in with these people and he knows what's happening. But he kind of gets it very wrong. Because whose were the altars that Hezekiah tore down? The other gods, the false gods. Hezekiah had been absolutely right in saying to Judah, come and worship at the altar in Jerusalem. And yet, this messenger says, no God, no God can stand against us. The pressure is on. Now, chapter 37, a messenger comes to this, uh, to this, to this other messenger. So jump over to chapter 37 and verse 8. Because the, the problem kind of gets worse. It gets compounded. Sennacherib is off at Lachish and another army comes from the side and so he has to engage in battle with him. And maybe if you're Judah at that point, you're thinking, brilliant, he's going to go and fight them. We're going to get away scot-free. No, when the field commander, verse 8 of chapter 37, when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Okay, they've all gone off, they're fighting another war. Is Judah free? Sennacherib heard a report that Tehaka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. It's all happening. But when he heard it, he didn't think, all right, I'm going to let Jerusalem go. He thought, I'm going to put the pressure on. 
They must make a decision now. And he sent another messenger with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to your God. You know why? Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And and you will be delivered? Did the gods of all the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver the gods of Gosim, Haran, Rezav, all the rest of them? These other nations, their gods did nothing. Diddly and squat, we wiped them out. And you think somehow that your God is going to save you. No God can stand, says the Assyrian king. And seemingly it's true, for no God has stood. Who is God? He can't deliver you. Give up or else. It's a problem for Hezekiah. It's a conundrum, right? You're facing certain destruction. An army thousands and thousands and thousands strong that you have no hope of defeating. What do you do? How do you respond rightly? Well, notice what Hezekiah does. Chapter 37 and verse 1, right? The first time the messenger came, this is what Hezekiah did. When Hezekiah heard this message, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent his administrators off to Isaiah to ask him to plead before God. He prayed. Hezekiah, in his moment of despair, turns to God. He turns to God in prayer. He turns to God for his word through the prophet Isaiah. And God responds. Verse 6, this is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you heard. Those words with which these underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, don't listen to them. Listen, I am going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he'll return to his own country and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Very specific. God says, you're worried about that king? Don't you worry. This is what I'm going to do with that king. And Hezekiah at that point must have just gone, oh, okay. That's nice. I mean, that's not kind of veiled prophecy or anything. That's really specific, right? The king is going, he's going to get killed by the sword. I'm all good. And in fact, the next thing you know, the king is off fighting all these other battles and he must be feeling great about it. But then the second message comes and again, what do you do? Don't believe God when God says, I'm going to do these things to Hezekiah. Don't believe him. And Hezekiah again turns to prayer. Verse 14, Hezekiah receives this second letter. He reads it, he went up to the temple of the Lord, he spread it out before the Lord and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. This is the response of God's people. When they are in need, when they are faced with trouble, when they need their God, they pray. I want you to notice the content of this prayer. I'll read it out, verse 16 in chapter 37. Notice who Hezekiah is concerned for. O Lord Almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult you, 
the living God. Oh, it's true, O oh Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these other peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods. They were only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O oh Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O oh Lord, are God. Hezekiah is concerned for God's glory. He is concerned for God's reputation, for God's plan and God's purposes. Oh, he asks for deliverance. Save us, please. But save us that the nations may know that you are God. And God responds in an extraordinary way. Verse 21 Because you have prayed to me, this is the word the Lord has spoken against me. Hezekiah, because you prayed, God has spoken a word against Sennacherib. And what a word. What a word. I mean, we're not going to read the whole thing. But God clearly says to him, you are a pup. You are nothing. I am the Lord God Almighty who does everything, even the facts and accurate that you're here now is my work. And do you know what I'm going to do? Like a ring in a pig's nose, I'm just going to grab you and take you home. For you are in my hands, Sennacherib. I know where you stay when you come and you go. Because you rage against me, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in, my ma- in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. Because you prayed, Hezekiah, here is what I will do. Now I wonder, would God have acted if Hezekiah didn't pray? I mean, that's, could he? Well, of course he could have. And yet time and again throughout the history of Israel, time and again throughout the God's dealings with his people, it is in response to the prayer of his people that God acts. And chapter 37 ends with God's word coming true. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, returned to Nineveh and stayed there and listened to the irony of his death. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, His sons cut him down with the sword. God's word came to pass. Powerful, chilling. There's a whole lot of questions that that raises about death. But I want to focus on Hezekiah's response. And I've got five lessons from this one. Five lessons. Firstly, Hezekiah's concern is for God's glory. Hezekiah's concern is for God's reputation, for God's plans and for God's purposes. Even in the face of destruction, even in the face of annihilation and death, the end of his reign, the end of his kingdom, still Hezekiah is concerned for God's glory. Participating in God's work in this world requires that attitude. That's no coincidence, right? The Lord's Prayer, remember how it begins? 
A Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It begins with that concern for God and not for us. I wonder for how many of us our Christianity is about me. It's about what I can get out of God. Oh, life's tough, so I better turn to God and get some good stuff out of him. I better be, be good so that God will bless me. It's all about me and my purposes and what I want to do and what I want God to do for me. Whereas like Sennacherib, our concern should be, what does God want? How can we glorify him? How can we honour him? It's not about what pleases me. It's not about what makes me feel good. Rather, it's about glorifying him. Firstly, Hezekiah's concerned for God's glory. Secondly, concerned as he is for God, Hezekiah prays. Hezekiah prays. So participating in God's work requires us to pray, to be dependent upon him. If it's his plans and his purposes that we want to carry out and we want him to carry out, then we ask. That's the basic mechanism for how God operates. As his people pray, God acts. That's the third one. Third lesson, God acts in response to prayer. Of course God can act separate to us praying. Does he? Yes. Can he? Will. Can he? Yes. Will he? Yes. And yet the pattern is consistent that as God's people pray, God acts. It's not magic words. Okay? It's, not, it's not like we've got some sort of uh, a formula or if you get it right, if the conditions are right, or if you say the right words or if enough of us pray or whatever, then we're kind of going to force God's hand and he's going to do what we want. It's, a, it's not a ritual thing. Rather, the picture is a father who loves his children. The father who has good things in store and he's just waiting to be asked. He wants to give. Jesus himself prayed. I mean, have you ever thought about that? What does Jesus need to pray? Surely he can do anything he wants to. He's God, right? Why is he praying? Because even Jesus was concerned for the glory of the Father. Not my will, but yours, he says. Fourthly, I wonder how much we're missing out on because we don't pray. And the words of James chapter 4, you don't have because you don't pray. You don't receive because when you do pray, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions and desires. Do we pray concerned for God that his will would be done, that lost sinners would be saved, that God's people would be built up, that we would display him in our lives? Can I invite you to do a prayer audit this week? Do a prayer audit. For some of us, that'll be very short, right? Did I pray? No. Okay, right? You've you've got an easy task. Start praying. But if, if you're praying, just think about your prayers. Who am I praying for? Who am I concerned for as I pray? Are all of my prayers, God, I want this. And I want it for me. Or are our prayers concerned for God? Mission, the growth of my fellow Christians, my own growth in holiness and godliness. Will you do a prayer order?
May God teach us seeing his holiness to pray. Our fifth lesson, all of these have been similarities with Hezekiah. I just want to point out kind of an obvious difference. Our prayers and Hezekiah's prayers are very different. Hezekiah had to go to the temple to pray. He had to approach Isaiah to hear God speak to him. Our prayers go through the Lord Jesus, the one who died and who rose and is now seated in heaven, the one who hears us as we pray, who intercedes for us on our behalf with the Father. And so it's not like when we're faced with a crisis we have to go to the special place to pray. Rather, in all of our lives we are invited to do so. I don't think I've met anyone yet who has this constant stream of prayer going through the day. I I fear that that's impractical. I, I, I don't know that that's what we're called to do. But to have such a dependence upon God that constantly, as opportunity arises, we plead with God that his name would be honoured in what is happening in front of us. Well, Hezekiah, he's a lesson in what to do to seek God's glory in prayer. But as it turns out, Hezekiah is also a lesson in what not to do. See, Assyria is now gone, clearly, right? They're done for. King's dead, army's destroyed, they don't come back. But a second nation enters the scene. Now jump over to chapter 39 with me. Chapter 39 and verse 1. And we're back to the problem part 1. Well, this is problem part 2 now, back to the first point. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he has heard of his illness and recovery and Hezekiah received the envoys gladly. Now, at first glance, where's the problem? I mean, these guys come, they're friendly, they're nice, there's no army, there's no destruction, they just bring in some presents, you know, a bunch of flowers, a get well card, heard you were sick, glad you're better, that kind of stuff. Where's the problem? Well, the problem is in what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah received the envoys, verse 2, and he showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armoury, everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. All of a sudden, this king, who was previously concerned for God's reputation, what does he do when foreigners come in? Hey, look at me. Look at all my stuff. Come and check out my man cave. There's uh, there's the pool table, the flat screen. It's not quite as much as there used to be because Assyria took a little bit, but check it out. Check me out. Check me out as a king. I'm amazing. Now, last time, God delivered Hezekiah because in his concern for God, he prayed. This time, Hezekiah is instead full of pride. There you go. It's prayer versus pride. And God responds in verse 3. Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did these men say? Where did they come from? Well, from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. 
The problem is this nation that has come before Hezekiah, who should have, who should have once again concerned for God's glory, spoken to them of the Lord who just delivered him from Assyria. And instead his response is one of pride. I showed them everything. I showed them how good I am and the stuff that I have, forgetting that all of it is God's. Now Isaiah said to Hezekiah in verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born to you. They will be taken away. They will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What could possibly have happened to this king to take him from a man who was so concerned for God to being full of pride and selfishness? I'll tell you what happened. Chapter 38 happened. Come back to chapter 38. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I'll show you the first couple of verses. Chapter 38 and verse 1. In those days Hezekiah became ill. He was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you're going to die. You won't recover. And Hezekiah, being a godly man as he is, said, well, okay, God, whatever's in your plan, whatever's in your purpose, I want to honour you. No, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and moaned and groaned. He prayed to the Lord, remember, Lord, how I walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. Even when Assyria was before the gates, Hezekiah never said, look at me, I'm good. He came to God and he pleaded. He said, God, you have mercy for it is your honour. And now all of a sudden, his health is enough to turn Hezekiah from thinking about God to thinking about himself. And God in his kindness relents. God in his kindness gives Hezekiah 15 more years of life. And yet such is now this man full of pride and selfishness. Now look at the last verse in chapter 39. Back over to 39 and 39 and verse 8. Listen to his response. Hezekiah, as I said, all of your stuff is going to get carted off to Babylon. Some of your kids are going to get carted off to Babylon and made eunuchs. And he says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Such is his pride and selfishness. Take my kids, that's okay. I'm going to have it easy. The right way to be a part of God's plans and purposes is to depend upon him, concerned for his holiness in prayer. The wrong way is to be full of pride such that we seek only our own good. I've got three lessons, three implications. Number one, we need to know ourselves. We need to be very clear and very conscious. What is it that is liable to tear me away from my God and make me selfish? For Hezekiah, it was his health. He could face an army and all was good. But as soon as he got sick and thought that was going to be it, he thought, no, you know what, it's about me now. What is it for you? When do you find yourself all of a sudden realising that you are no longer concerned for God, for growth in holiness, for evangelism, for loving and caring for others, and instead you're concerned for yourself and your own selfish desires? Is it health for you? While you're healthy, it's all good. But as soon as you get sick, no, God, you've got to fix it. It's all about me. 
Is it money? Right? As long as we're flush, it's all good. As soon as the bank balance drops, come on God, sort it out. Where is it that you are likely to think this is about me and my enjoyment and my desires and what makes me feel good instead of wanting to glorify him? Is it your kids? Oh, God, I'll do anything for you, but please don't send my kids as missionaries to Uganda. (laughs) Anything you want, God, as long as my kids can have their own home and a good job and decent education and live comfortable. Or maybe it's your grandkids. I don't know. Where are you up to? We need to know ourselves. Secondly, be careful of our friends. I am... there were two, two guys, when I was kind of year five, six, somewhere around about their primary school. Now, there were a couple of guys in my life. There was a bunch of people, but there were two guys I want to tell you about. One of them taught me a lot about patience. He taught me a lot about self-control, about love, about caring for other people, those who are in need, those who are vulnerable. The other guy, he taught me a lot of other things. He incited me to greed. And to lust, I mean, he was very wealthy, he had porn lying around all over the place. He taught me swear words and how to be selfish and self-centred. And looking back, do you know who those two people were? The guy who taught me patience and love and self-control was the class bully. Because in the face of a kid who's bigger than you, what can you do but trust in your God? He taught me care for others who were also being picked on by him. He taught me patience. And do you know the guy who taught me all these other things was? One of my best mates. I spent all my time at his house and that was the influence he had on me. The king of Assyria comes before Hezekiah as his enemy and what does Hezekiah do? Depend upon the Lord in prayer. The Babylonians come with gifts and the man is full of pride. I'm not saying go and make enemies of your friends. Okay, I'm not saying that. If that's where you thought I was going, you just need to go and all of them get... No. But we do need to be wary. Who is influencing you? I'll tell you what, sometimes family is the hardest. It is the hardest time to be holy, to be godly in the presence of our family. Concerned for God. Thirdly, we need to flee pride. We need to cut out everything, everything that would take us away from dependence upon our God. I don't, if you're like me, I find myself thinking that I can do most things on my own and that I need God every now and then. I can do most things just in my own strength and my own cleverness and education and wealth. It's, it's, it's one of the dangers, I think, of wealth. Our great education, our capacity to do so much. I think I can do, let's run with 98% of things. The bit that, well, God converts people. That's the bit he does. I do the rest. We have to remove that. It only leaves us full of pride. We need to learn to see God's hand in everything. The breath that I take right now is his. I can't do anything outside of him. We must cut out pride. And so the right way to participate in what God is doing in your life and in mine is to be concerned for his glory and so to pray. The wrong way is to be filled with pride. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are sorry that so often we respond like Hezekiah did to Babylon rather than to Assyria. We respond in pride. We respond in self-reliance. We respond simply by forgetting you, ignoring you, concerned for our own desires rather than your honour. And so, Father, please, would you teach us to love you? Would you teach us to seek to glorify you, to bring about your plans and your purposes in each one of our lives? Father, keep far from us pride. And, Father, we ask this so that through us and through our work, the nations would know that you, O Lord, alone are God. Amen.